If anybody needs a Bible, just lift a hand and the ushers will bring one to you. Jesus appeared to the Apostle John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And he told him to write the things that he had seen, past tense, the things which are, present tense, and the things which shall be, hereafter, future tense. And thus we discover that the book of Revelation divides into three sections. The past, the present, and the future. And as we come now to chapter 10, we find ourselves in the throes of this future section of the book of Revelation, the things which shall be hereafter. And we find ourselves in this period of time called the tribulation, seven years that are yet to happen on planet earth where God will pour out judgment and wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Also a time wherein he will again deal with the nation of Israel and restore and revive them as an entity and bring them to their Savior. And also a time when he will kind of give that knockout punch to, to seek to save those last people that will give their lives to him uh, and surrender to his lordship as they realize the things that are happening are the hand of God in the act of judgment. And by the time we come to chapter 10 here, we're just about at the midway point of the tribulation, give or take just a little bit. Now, in chapter 4, we saw the church, the believers, taken out of the earth, caught up, the rapture, if you would. And in chapter 6, the tribulation began. And just so you don't forget, the tribulation consists of three sets of seven judgments. Seven seal judgments as the lamb breaks the seal, the seven seals on the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. Seven trumpet judgments as the seven angels that stand before the the throne of God each sound their trumpet and there is a judgment that is released upon planet earth. And then those are followed by seven bowl or seven vile judgments, which is the final last plagues, which really fill up the wrath of God, the most intense of all the things that we will see happen during the tribulation period. Now, in our last time together, we looked at the first six trumpets. So we we kind of, as we come to chapter 10, are in this gap between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet in these series of seven trumpets. And we come to tonight the second parenthetic passage here in the book of Revelation. Now, remember that the chronology of events is measured by these three sets of seven judgments. But periodically, as we go through, there are sections of Scripture that don't necessarily correlate with one of those acts of judgment, but that give to us insight and revelation, if you would, into secrets, if you would, spiritual things that John sees and then records for us that, you know, may or may not play right into the chronology at that present time. But nevertheless, he gives them to us. And so here we are in this. Now, it isn't until we come to chapter 11, verse 15, which is where we'll pick up next week, that we get to the seventh trumpet. So we're in this gap between the sixth and seventh here in in the text. And then after that, it isn't until chapter 16 
that the third series of judgments come. So, for, you know, the second half of chapter 11 gives us that seventh trumpet. And then chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are all kind of this big, huge parenthetic that have various um, events recorded for us of things that happen midway through the tribulation period. And it's an extremely interesting section that we will uh, d- dive into next week. Those chapters, chapters uh, 12 through 14, all things related to the seventh trumpet. And then chapters 15 and 16 deal with the seven bowl judgments. And then chapters 17 and 18 deal with the destruction of Babylon, both spiritual and literal. 17 is the spiritual religious system of Antichrist. 18 is the commercial system of the world. And then in 19 is the second coming. So we're really almost there. You know, I mean, it's really, you know, you kind of can get tied up because the the chapters break down. But if you just look at it it, like that, there's really not much left. We have the seventh trumpet and then we have all the events associated with the seventh trumpet, the midpoint of the tribulation, the seven bowls, the judgment of Babylon, and then the second coming. So really, it's not uh, there's not a whole lot left, although inside of what is left, there's quite a bit to look at. Very interesting, um, very revealing stuff to, to see. So here we are, chapter 10, John writes and he says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now, the first thing that we see here in this parenthetic passage that begins in chapter 10 is this mighty angel that bears a very striking similarity to the description of Jesus Christ, the son of God that we saw back in chapter one. And just from looking at the text, you can see that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that perhaps this is none other than Jesus Christ, who we see in this vision. What would make us think that? Well, it says an angel, doesn't it? And, you know, Jesus isn't an angel. So how how could this be Jesus if it says that it's an angel? Well, remember that throughout the Old Testament, it was a very common thing for, you know, an, an, an appearance of God in the Old Testament to be labeled as the angel of the Lord. You recall that when the, the father, when the I am came to meet with Moses in the midst of the burning bush, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in the midst of a bush. And we see that over and over again that the angel of the Lord came. And, and it simply means an appearing of God or an appearing of Christ, if you would, pre-incarnate, prior to his coming as the babe in Bethlehem. So, you know, it, just because it says a mighty angel doesn't mean that this isn't Jesus. The second thing that we see in the, this description is that he's clothed with a cloud. And, and constantly throughout The New Testament, when it talks about the second coming or the appearing of the Lord, it says that he cometh with clouds. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says that he cometh with clouds. Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when Jesus ascended for the final time, it says that he was caught up in a cloud. 
And that the two men that stood by said to the, the apostles, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? He will so return in like manner as you saw him, you know, again, coming with the clouds. And so this could be, again, a picture of Christ. The third thing it tells us there is that there was a rainbow upon his head. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, we saw that there was a rainbow that surrounded the throne. The prophet Ezekiel, who saw an image of the glory of the Lord, records for us in chapter 1 of, of Ezekiel, verse 28. He says that as the bow in the cloud on a rainy day, so is his appearance round about. And he says, this is the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So Ezekiel, when he saw the Lord, he saw this similar image of this rainbow about his head. The fourth thing it says there is that his face shone as the sun. Revelation 1.16 describes Jesus in the very same language that his face shines as the sun in its strength. The fifth thing it tells us that his feet were as pillars of fire. Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 says that the, the, the feet of the Lord, that they looked as though they burned in a furnace, you know, in, in all of that. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, and then you see him here. It says that this angel that he landed and he had one foot uh, in the sea and the other on the land, you know, as if to lay claim with the book in his hand of that which was redeemed. You know, and so for that reason, many have ascribed that this is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, the little book that we see in his hand, some have, you know, thought that perhaps this is the open deed. You know, that here he is, he's got the deed, and so now he's come to lay claim on the property. That could be but probably not. And the reason why is because every time that it talks about the scroll or the book that was the title deed of the earth, it uses a particular word in the Greek language. And this here is a completely different word. The, the word here is literally biblios. You know, it's little book. And it's a different word altogether. It signifies that it's something else. And it's most likely the Bible. It's most likely the scriptures. The power of God in the word of God. And, and as we get down further into the chapter, I'll tell you why. And if it wasn't for, you know, the things that we read in verses 8 through 11, I, I would probably think that this is the title deed, but I don't. I think it's something else. But the other side is that people say, no, this isn't Jesus who's coming and landing with one foot in the sea and the other foot on the land. But they're saying, no, this is a mighty angel because it says it's a mighty angel. And it could be that simple. I'm not sure, you know. But the other reason why they say that is because when we come to verse 6 or verse 5, it says that the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever. And they say that, well, Jesus would not swear by anything higher than himself. But to them... One might argue and say, well, Hebrews 6.13 says that because God could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. So it could go either way. It seems to me that this is Jesus, but I don't know. That's what I'm trying to tell you is I don't know who this is. But it's a mighty angel who sets one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And he has a little book in his hand. And it says that he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And that's interesting to think, especially if this is Jesus that comes. Because I think of the cry that he let out when he was on the cross. The cry of agony as a suffering servant. 
in the act of redemption, the act of redeeming the purchased prize. But this time he comes and he roars as a lion, not in agony upon a cross, but in victory to lay claim to that which he purchased. And it's an incredible picture of the completed picture. When Satan tempted Jesus when he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, he said to him, if you will just simply bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. And if you stop and really consider what it was that Satan was offering Jesus, he was giving him the easy way out. Jesus himself said that his purpose in coming to the earth was to redeem it, to lay claim to it again, to get it back, to buy it back. And here's Satan, and he's offering him the easy way. Just bow the knee to me, and I'll sign it over. It'll be yours, completed. No cross, no suffering, no agony, no nails. Just one bow that no one will ever know about, and all will be yours again. And Jesus looked at the devil, and he said, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he knew that the only way to obtain a crown that would last would be to bear a cross first. And thus Jesus bore the cross and he cried the cry of agony. But for that moment that he suffered for all of eternity, he will roar in victory. As we see him here, the lion roaring as he lays claim to that which he redeemed. And then it tells us that when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now I'm going to tell you what the seven thunders said. Ready? Get your pen. No, I'm just kidding. But you would be amazed at how many people... You know, they know what it is, and they're going to tell us what it is. No, listen, we don't know. We will know. But suffice it for now, you know, isn't it like, ooh, Lord, I want to know, what did the seven thunders say, you know? We don't know what they said. But it says that when when the angel I saw, I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and he sware by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which therein are, that there should be time no longer. And, and this isn't an, an, you know, an indication that there will no longer be the ticking of the clock or the rising and the setting of the sun. But, but what the language is, is that there will be no longer a delay. That there will no longer be a waiting. Paul wrote to the Romans and he says that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now waiting. For the redemption of the body. Waiting for the, you know, the, the completion of this thing. For it to be over. And don't you sense that groaning. Growing within you. With every passing day lately. The things that are going on in the world. And the outlook of things is not good. And there's just something that. Especially in the heart of the believer. That you just say Maranatha. Come quickly Lord. Please just hurry up. And there's this groaning that happens. And by the time we come to this point here, that's it. There's no more delay. There's not going to be any more waiting. But now the events that are going to take place are going to take place very quickly, very pointedly, very decisively. And and the the ball is going to roll. It's kind of like an hourglass. Remember, you know, when you used to play games when you were younger, you play like Pictionary or something and you flip over the hourglass. And at first it seems like nothing's really happening at all. 
You know, you see the sand dropping down in the bottom, but the, the, the amount of sand in the top just seems to be, be there. But then, once it gets down to where it's in the bottleneck and there's really not much left at all, then it's like, ah, oh, there's no time. And it's just, it seems like it's pouring out so quickly. And that's the picture here is that now it just seems like everything is delayed. It seems like, yeah, things are happening. Yeah, sand is dropping out of the bottom. But it just seems like, Lord, when? When are you going to come? But here he's saying that there will be no more delay, that now this is going to be the time when all of the culmination will happen quickly. And it says in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now the mystery of God throughout the New Testament or throughout the Bible is always surrounding the issue of salvation or the saving of souls. Every time this word comes up, that's the context within which it is used. This, this act and work of salvation of how God can take a sinner, someone who's fallen, someone who's lost, someone who's guilty, and bring them to the place of justification where they are sanctified, you know, justified and will be glorified. And, and it's a mystery how this will happen. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus began giving the series of what is called in the Bible kingdom parables. You know, and there's the parable of the sower, the parable of the pearl, the parable of the, you know, the treasure and the dragnet. And all these different parables that are all concerning how the Lord himself, even the mustard seed, is going to build his kingdom. And when his disciples asked and said, Lord, why is it that you speak to the people in parables? You're constantly using parables to do it. Jesus in Matthew 13, 11 responds and he says, because it is given to you to know the mysteries, same word that's used here in Revelation, of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And as these mysteries are unfolded, and as we read them, we realize that they all deal with this issue of salvation, of how God came into the world for the sake of taking that which was lost and saving it, taking that which was dead and reviving it, bringing it back to life, taking that which was hellbound and turning it heavenbound by his act of redemption, all of these kingdom parables. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, talking about this mystery. He says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest unto his saints, to wit, or to whom God would make known what is the riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That God, a holy God who dwelleth in perfect light, that is absolute righteousness, perfect in all of his ways, could somehow indwell and fellowship with sinful man. And it's a mystery because how can these two things that are so mutually exclusive, the one from the other, be blended and the two be made one in this act of fellowship where it isn't an external relationship but an internal dwelling? It's a mystery. And Paul says that to you, it's been revealed. In the past, it was hidden, but we have, it's been made known. It's manifested to us. To Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes again, and he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, 
believed on in the world and received up into glory. This great mystery of how this can all work out. And so the mystery, it always concerns the work of salvation. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, and probably the most amazing of all the texts that we have concerning this mystery, Peter writes and he says, to who, or whom, speaking of us, having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, They did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Now listen, which things the angels desire to look into. So Paul talking to Timothy about this salvation, about this glory, this honor that we have, that the prophet spoke of, that we receive this grace, this salvation. And Peter tells us that even the angels don't understand it. And they're probably more confused than anybody because they see everything. They see the holiness of God. They see his glory. They see his majesty. They hide themselves at the shaking of the pillars and the smoking of the room as the temple, you know, shakes at their cry. And yet at the same time, they see us. And when they look at us, they see iniquity. They see defilement. If they have noses, they can't bear to be in our presence. You know, because we are the antithesis of everything that is holy, everything that is godly. And yet somehow God loved us enough to become one of us, be crucified by us so that he could save us and then live inside of us. And the angels go, what? They don't get it. It's a mystery. And throughout the whole Bible, this mystery of how God could love sinful fallen man so much that he would die in in his place and save him. But here, by the time the angel, the seventh angel sounds, midway through the tribulation, it says, in those days when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared. And by all indications, it would seem that by this point, you're either in or you're out. The line is drawn in the sand, And at this point, from this time, and we'll see it as we get into, you know, the seventh trumpet at that time when the mark of the beast is manifested and, you know, the line is drawn. And those that take the mark, they are lost forever. There is no hope of them ever repenting or coming to Christ after this. The mystery of God will be finished. But then in verse 8, it says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke unto me again. And said, go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. A bitter belly. Now, a bitter belly happens 
when the stuff you put in doesn't mix well with the stuff that's already there, right? You know, that's where it comes from. Now, the belly throughout the New Testament is always a word that is used or associated with the desires or the inclinations of our flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul wrote and he said, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And Paul describes the person who makes a profession of Christ, but that lives completely to satisfy and gratify their flesh. And he says that their God is their belly. They live to satisfy themselves, to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and who mind earthly things. They're worldly by nature. And it really sheds light on what's taking place here. This is why I believe that this little book that John is given and told to eat is the Bible, the scriptures. So often doesn't it happen that we read the word of God or we hear the Bible taught correctly and explained clearly and it's sweet to our taste, isn't it? The truth of God is illuminated. You know, the lights turn on. We, we, we understand the divine promises that are given. We perceive the future hope that we have. In the, the Bible, it's sweet to our taste as we take it in. It's so real. It's so alive. It's so refreshing. It's just everything that we need. It's like that meat or that milk, you know, that the Bible talks about. The feeding, the bread of life, the manna from heaven, the living water. And it's so sweet to our taste. Psalm 19, verse 10, the psalmist says that more to be desired, speaking of the scriptures, are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And the word is sweetness to our taste as we take it in. But once the word of God trickles through the gate and then filters through the mind, if we allow it to trickle down into the depths of who we are, And sink into the heart. At that point the word of God will begin to react with what's already inside of us. And at that point now we can begin to relate to the bitter belly. Right? When that which goes in doesn't mix well with what's already there. The appetites, the inclinations, the selfish drives that move us. You know that we're born to follow after and that we live for. But the word of God begins to mix with those things and that which was sweet when it went in begins to become bitter within us as the word of God begins to do its work upon our flesh. Now this will never happen to someone who takes an exclusively intellectual approach to the Bible. They'll study the concepts. It'll be like candy to them. They'll, you know, they'll go through and they'll underscore it and, and, and re- realize it and even be able to explain it and teach it, but never allow it to trickle past the mind and to work its way into the heart or into the, the belly and do its work upon the life. They understand the facts, but they never let it change their life. They equate knowing the truth of God's word with doing it and living it at the same time. And they're two totally different things. These are the ones that Paul is referring to in Philippians chapter 3. 
He said, for many walk. That means that they have, make a profession. They claim to be Christians. But Paul says, but I tell you, I told you before and I tell you now, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Because although they'll walk and they'll profess and they'll study, they'll absorb the sweetness of the word of God, they will never let it affect the way that they live and deal with the appetites of their body and their flesh. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. They want the glory and the promises and the hope and all that God will give them, but they do not want to take up their cross and allow the nail of the word to crucify the life of the flesh. But look what happens if you allow this book, the word of God, to affect you in a deeper way than simply in just your intellect. Look what happens in verse 11. It says that he said unto me, after, after he eats the word and it does its work upon his life, it says that he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, once you've not only taken in the sweetness of the word, but you've allowed the word of God to do its work within your life, now you're a vessel that is meat for the master's use. Because now you know more than just the concepts and, you know, the things that, that, that you can explain or teach or the doctrine or the theology. But now it's been worked out within your life. And you've tasted beyond just the sweetness of the surface, but the depths of what the work of Christ is within our lives as we allow his word into us. And it makes you qualified to give something away to others as well. There are many people that want to preach. There are many people that do preach. They preach at the dinner table on Thanksgiving when their whole family's gathered together. They'll preach on a city street with a sandwich board strapped to themselves that says, turn or burn, repent or die, you know. They'll preach in a break room at the office, you know, when all the people are listening and they have a captive audience and, you know, nobody can get away or nobody has anywhere else to go. And they have all the facts. They have all of the doctrine down. They might even have a diploma or a degree in biblical theology in some way. But many of those that make such a a great profession have neglected to allow the word of God to change and affect them in their flesh where it really counts, where it really matters in the way that they live, in the way that they walk. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 4 through 6. And he says that God, he comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by, listen, the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, It is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What Paul is saying there and what Paul knew, what he realized is that he was only able to give away that which he had received, not through education and intellectual assent, but that he had gotten through impartation by fellowshipping with Jesus Christ himself. 
that the weight behind the message that he had didn't come through the books that he studied and the knowledge he attained, but it came through the life that he lived as he allowed the word of God to work out in his own life, his own salvation. Do you understand? John was told, eat the book. It will be sweetness in your mouth, but it will be bitterness in your belly. But you will stand before many peoples, kings, and nations. God's desire for our lives is that we be useful, vessels unto honor that are fit for his use, that he can spend upon the world. But he cannot use us unless we first allow his word to do its work in us. He cannot use flesh uncrucified, unrefined knowledge. It's useless to him. It's only when we allow the word of God to do its work within our lives. Then we walk with prophetic power. The key here is eat up the book. Don't just take it for its sweetness, skim off the surface, but allow it to do its work within your life. There was a young convert that was talking to uh, Wilbur Smith, who was, I I don't think he's still alive, but he had a lot to do with the discipleship of Billy Graham. And he was just, um, one time Billy Graham said about Wilbur Smith that there's not a man on the planet that knows more about the Bible than Wilbur Smith. And one of his young uh, disciples, you know, men that he was working with said to him, man, I think it would be so great to go through the whole Bible. And Wilbur Smith looked at him and he smiled and he said, yeah, that would be great, but I know something that would be even greater. And the young man said, what? And he said, to let the whole Bible go through you. And there's a big difference between someone who goes through the Bible and someone who lets the Bible go through them. Theologians can go through the Bible. Doctors and preachers and professors Even many pastors and teachers, they can go through the Bible. But someone who's going to be used of God lets the Bible go through them. It's like John wrote in 1 John, those first couple verses when he says, that which we have received and heard, that which we have handled, our hands have handled of the word of life, that declare we unto you. That before I'll ever declare anything unto you, it's first real in me. And that was the life that John had to let it deal with the life. The result will that you will stand boldly before peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Well, chapter 11, it says that there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot Forty and two months. Now, if you go to Israel today, and and really you don't even have to go there. You could just kind of look at one of those uh, panoramic pictures of the city. And right there in the middle of that picture, or if you go there and you see the city skyline, right in the middle at the highest point, you will see the Temple Mount. And it's very easy to identify because right up on top of it sits that big gold-domed mosque called the Dome of the Rock. And you will soon discover that there is no temple of the Jews resting there on the Temple Mount these days. In fact, the only piece of real estate in the whole city of Jerusalem that is not controlled by the Jews is the Temple Mount. 
for some reason, when Moshe Dayan was making the negotiations after the war in 1967, he let the Arabs maintain control of that piece of property. He didn't have to, but he did. And thus, today, still standing upon that mount are those two buildings. You have the Dome of the Rock, the big gold dome thing, and then there's a smaller one with a black dome called the Al-Aqsa Mosque that is, is up there. But there is no temple. Now, if you could picture in your mind the Temple Mount, just picture a football field, 100 yards long, you know, by by a certain amount wide. And and that will be your, you know, your picture in your mind of the Temple Mount and how much space is there roughly. Now, divide it, you know, run it the long way so that you have, you know, it running north and south the long way. If you cut it in half right at the 50-yard line, the two buildings, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, both of them are on the southern part of that football field so from the 50 yard line south are those two buildings and from the 50 yard line north there is nothing except for one small structure there is a tiny little pergola or tiny little like gazebo type thing that's called the dome of the tablets and it is believed that that is the spot that you know rested upon the holy of holies in the jews temple at that time And right now, on that section of the Temple Mount, there is nothing. It is completely just empty there, except for that little gazebo. Now, most Jewish scholars and those that have studied the history believe that the Temple of the Jews was on that northern half of that block, right where that Dome of the Tablets thing is. Now, when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, which is east of, it's actually west of, um, you know, the the Temple Mount, if you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking directly at the Temple Mount, the east gate of the, you know, Temple Complex is right there in front of you and directly in line with the eastern gate is that Dome of the Tablets, you know. And it's for that reason that they believe that that's where the Temple stood when they were on it. Because, you know, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes back or when Messiah comes, that he will set his feet down upon the Mount of Olives and then he will go into the temple. And the way from the Mount of Olives into the temple is directly through the east gate, which would then line up directly with the entrance to the temple and then go right into the Holy of Holies, which would represent the, you know, the dwelling place of God, you know. Psalm chapter 24 verses uh, four through or five through seven it says that he shall receive the blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation this is the generation of them that seek him and that seek thy face O god of jacob he says lift up your heads O ye gates and be lift up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now that's speaking of the golden gate, the eastern gate there. And this is common knowledge in Israel, so much so that the Muslims have made the section of ground outside of the eastern gate their cemetery. All of their graves and tombstones are there upon the ground right in front of the eastern gate because they know that no Jew will ever set foot on burial grounds. And so they've kind of, you know, kind of spit on that ground, so to speak, as if to say, yeah, your Messiah will see about that, you know. But that's the spot where it is. All that to say, during the tribulation time, there will be a temple. That's why John is told here, he's given a read, and he's told to measure the temple. 
that's there upon the temple mount. Right now, there is no temple. But, if you recall from previous studies, the thing, the event that's going to start off this period of tribulation is going to be a peace deal brokered by this man who is the Antichrist that will bring peace and stability to that region and that will also allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Now they are waiting expectantly for that time when that man will make that covenant and they'll be able to do it. They are ready. There's an organization in Israel today called the Temple Institute and they have, they have done everything that they need so that when the go time comes, they're ready. They've made all of the vessels, over 90 instruments that will be worshipped, the golden bowls. We saw the, you know, the lampstand you know, that's described there. The thing is like six or seven feet tall. They, they, could, they tried to make it like so many different times and every time they did it, the arms were so heavy that they couldn't make them strong enough and they would just sag, you know, because it's made out of pure gold until someone donated a lump of gold that was big enough that it didn't have to be, you know, molten. It could just be cut out of one piece of gold and then it it held its strength, you know, and the thing is massive, you know, and all the garments for the uh, priest's clothing and all of the things, even the red heifers that are used in the, the offering, they're being bred and everything is ready now. It's only for that time when it will happen. And the amazing thing is that it can happen without the destruction of the gold dome of the rock or the Al-Aqsa mosque. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, first of all, here in verse two, it says the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot for 40 and two months. So he says, don't measure that because that's given to them. Ezekiel chapter 42 verse 20 speaks of that temple that will be built and he says that there will be a wall that will be built all the way around it that will separate the holy place from the profane. And so it's as if God knew way back in Ezekiel's day that there would be profane, you know, houses of worship there upon his temple mount. You know, it's so eerie. We went there and you, know, you see the, the Dome of the Rock. And right by the front entrance, there's this marble, like, ornamental slab that's right next to the door. And if you look at the profile of the grain and the marble, it's the perfect picture of Satan's face. I mean, it has the horns and the dark. We took pictures of it. It's disgusting. And it's just sitting right there. And then you, what well, we didn't go in, but they, we could have, but we didn't want to. It smelled really bad, you know. But you could walk in and you turn around and up, uh, uh, you know, and inscribe the words right over the thing. It says the words in Arabic. It says, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. And the whole purpose of that is just to slam Christianity, you know, the Son of God, that he's the only begotten Son of God. It's a profane place. And thus Ezekiel is told there will be a wall that is built that separates the holy from the profane. And John here is shown the temple during that time. And he's told to measure it and they that worship therein. But the court, we're told, he is told to leave out. Now in verse 3 it says that I will give power in these days unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore or sixty days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the god of the whole earth now this is the first three and a half years of the tribulation time the 42 months 
that the Gentiles are trotting over the, you know, that forsaken or that profane land and the 1260 days that these two prophets are prophesying, it's the same span of time. And it also reveals to us that the seven years are lunar years, that they're 360 day years because, you know, you divide this 42 months out and you get the 1260 days and it works out to a 360 day year. But what he's telling us here is that for this first three and a half years of this tribulation time, God is going to have these two witnesses that are there in Jerusalem that are giving witness and bearing testimony unto what he's doing. What are they doing? It says that if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Interesting, isn't it? These two witnesses for 42 months and what they are given to do and the power that they possess in the fulfilling of the ministry that they have. Now, the great question is, who are these two witnesses that are, you know, there at this time? And many have speculated and tried to, you know, there's basically four major views, and you can just pick the one that you like the best. Some have said that this is Joshua and Zerubbabel, you know, back from when the temple was rebuilt in the days after the captivity. And certainly the language that's given here about the two olive trees and the two candlesticks, it reflects very much on that scripture in Zechariah chapter 4 when he sees, Zechariah sees this vision of these two olive trees that are kind of feeding this golden lampstand. And, and, and he says, what is this, Lord? And the Lord says, these are the two you know, olive trees that are feeding and, and, and you know, equipping this lampstand uh, for their work. They're the two olive trees. And he was speaking of Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were the ones that were there kind of holding up the arms of Israel as they by the spirit of God were rebuilding after the time of the captivity and so some have said that these two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel from the Old Testament and it could be but it's not the same the analogy kind of breaks down because you know they were kind of feeding or the spirit's tool if you would in order to bring Israel which was the lampstand back into its place where it existed Here, these are the two lampstands that are giving witness to the world of Jehovah God. So it's kind of not the same thing, but there are those that say Joshua and Zerubbabel. Others say that this is Enoch and Elijah. And their their reasoning for that is that those are the only two men that never died in their walk upon the earth. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. That everyone has an appointment with death, but those two never did. Enoch, it says that he walked with God and was not. God took him. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Elijah, we know that he also didn't die. That he was taken up in the whirlwind and the chariot of fire and that he didn't die either. And so some have speculated that this is Elijah and Enoch and that they haven't had their appointment with death yet. And so they will have their time during the tribulation, 42 months, and then they will also be killed as we will read, uh, you know, as we get into verse 7 there. It's possible. We know, I, I'm fairly certain that at least one of these men are Elijah. 
Malachi, the last couple of verses there in Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, the father says that he will send Elijah before that great and notable day. He gives us the name of the one. And we also see that he has power to stop the rain and to call down fire from heaven, both things that happened during the life and ministry of Elijah. So very certainly, I would say one of these men is probably Elijah. The third view, and I think the one that probably makes the most sense, is that it's Moses and Elijah. Now, when you read these things, and I could read these things to my kids, they have power to turn the water into blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And I can say, who does that sound like? My kids can say, that's Moses, you know, because that's what happened in the life of Moses. And certainly, you know, you have Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And so you have the witness of the law and the prophets there giving light to the nation of Israel, seeking to bring them back to God. It makes a lot of sense. But again, we don't know for certain. And then, number four, and I wonder about this, you know, again, we don't know, it's pure speculation, but I wonder if it's maybe the Apostle John and the prophet Elijah. Remember, at the very end of the last chapter, he was told to eat the little book, and that he said he was told that he would yet prophesy before many tongues, peoples, and, you know, nations. And then these are called the two candlesticks. And then, you know, the Old Testament, you have the candlestick, the lamp of Israel. And in the New Testament, you have the candlestick, the light of the church. And so maybe perhaps you have Elijah representing the the nation of Israel. You have John representing the church, the lampstand. And so you have the the antiquitous light, you know, illumination of God and the New Testament together. Possible. I don't know. But we know that there's these two witnesses. And in verse 7, it says that when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Isn't it comforting to know that Satan has absolutely no power over you and death has no power over you until God is done with you? That here, these two guys are the only thing that Antichrist has no power of. The rest of the world he has gained control of. At this time, everybody has given their allegiance. They've drawn their lines. He controls all of the real estate. He controls all of the resources, the whole world. And these two prophets in Jerusalem are kind of that thorn in his side that he would love to have out of the way so that he can go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God, which he will do as soon as they are dead. And for 42 months, he has no power to touch them. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There are many Christians that fear the devil. They fear that they're possessed with some demons that they've inherited from their parents' sins or some generational curse. Listen, the Bible says that when you come to Christ and you're born again, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That means that Christ takes up residence within you and he does not timeshare with Satan. Light and darkness do not dwell in the same house together. And the presence of Christ clearly means the absence of darkness. And he has no power over you until God, well, he has no power over you, period. Death has no power over you until God is finished with you. And it says that their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom, the capital of immorality, and Egypt, which was the capital of idolatry, where also our Lord was crucified. And thankfully, John tells us that so that we would know that this is Jerusalem that he's speaking of. 
And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And by the way, this is how we know that this is the first 42 months, the first half of the tribulation. Because if it were the second half of the tribulation, there ain't no three and a half days after that 42 months. Uh, So we know this is the first 42 months. And it says that they will send gifts to one another. Amazing, isn't it? And make merry because those two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. That will be the new national holiday of the tribulation time. Death of prophets day or something, you know. And after three days and a half, I love this. The spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon all them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Awesome, isn't it? To just think of this. Here's these guys, these two guys that are, you know, witnesses as they stand before the people, witnesses of the crucifixion of Christ. But then they are also witnesses of resurrection as they stand three and a half days after their, their, their death. And then they are witnesses of ascension to the people in the whole planet that are watching. And isn't it amazing that we live in the only day since this was penned where the whole world could be watching an event that's taking place in a single spot on the planet? Via CNN, satellite TV, you know, and, you know, watching the networks. And here they will see as the camera shines upon the bodies of these two dead prophets that tormented the world for 42 months. And just like, you know, many people are watching those eagles right now. I don't know if any of you are into that. You know, they got the camera on those eagles' nests and watching the baby eagles. The cameras will be fixed upon the bodies of these two. And after three and a half days, they will revive. And they will stand. And there will be a voice. And there will be an ascension. And the whole world will have heard the testimony of the crucifixion, of resurrection, and of ascension. As these two witnesses are caught up. And then it says that the same hour was there a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And there we will pick up next week as we pick up at verse 15 and we hear the sounding of that seventh trumpet and what will happen at that midway point of the tribulation. But as we close, I want to encourage you, be people that eat up the book. Don't be those that simply allow it to tickle your intellect, that satisfy kind of a desire to be in the know of spiritual things and how things are going. But be those people that take in the word, that you are allowing it, not just to, for yourself to go through it, but allowing the word of God to go through you. Allow it to do its work within you. Allow it to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Allow it to equip you to be used by God in your world. And allow its power to be present within you. Witnesses of the Lord in this time. Father, we just pray. We thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the testimony. We thank you for all that you're showing us and all that you're doing. And I do pray that tonight, Lord, you would burn this word within us. That you, the one who purchased us by right of redemption, 
It's not that you hold a book, Lord. You are the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would stir up a hunger within us for the word of God. That you would allow it to do its work within us. That we would lay down those selfish attitudes, those carnal appetites, those fleshly desires. That you would forgive us, Lord, where we have equated knowing with doing. We know bitterness will harm us, but yet we hold on to it. We hold on to that hatred towards someone. Lord, give us wisdom. And I pray for each person here tonight, Lord, that we would go forth as missionaries. That as this word that we heard tonight goes through us, that you would empower us to stand in our world. To stand before family with the light of Jesus Christ in our face. The spirit of the living God burning in our hearts. The joy of our salvation evident within us. To stand in our workplaces. To be the same in the secret place as we are in the public place that we would be holy, sanctified, set apart for you. We ask that you would give us a single heart, an undivided life. As the psalmist said, unite my heart to praise thy name. Lord, as we await your return, we pray that we would be pleasing to you, not by might, by power, but by your spirit working within us. We invite you now to do your work within our lives. I pray that as we stand and sing this song, that your spirit would have free course to work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.